You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello, and welcome to the Nitty Gritty Nursing podcast with Nurse M. Today, I'm going to talk about hepatitis, and I'm going to try to cover the nitty gritty basics of what a student in nursing school should probably know about hepatitis. And I'm going to give you some smart ways to remember how to keep all of these separated, like how is it transmitted, things like that. But in order to do that, I really need to just have a basic understanding of what hepatitis is. And all hepatitis is in the nitty gritty of it all is just inflammation of the liver caused by some sort of virus or bacteria or some sort of exposure to a medication or hepatotoxin with the ultimate goal of treatment honestly being just to rest the inflamed liver, because if we can rest it and not have it working so much, it will reduce the metabolic demands and increase the blood supply, thus promoting cellular regeneration and preventing complications from occurring. Because the liver's job is super important. It filters, it stores things like clotting components and breaks down substances like ammonia and bilirubin, and it protects body from toxins because of the first pass effect. So everything we put in our mouth, right, when it gets broken down inside the stomach, that blood is filtered to the liver, first pass effect, and it helps produce bile in conjunction with a gallbladder. So the liver is an incredibly important organ that I think is probably overlooked often, at least in my opinion it is. And what can result is if it is inflamed for too long, we can develop hepatitis. Now, in terms of hepatitis, There's five types of hepatitis you're going to want to be aware of, and it's hepatitis A, B, C, D, and E. Go figure the first five letters of the alphabet. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to break down the different types of hepatitises that you might run into so that you can kind of understand what causes them. Now, the primary causes of hepatitis are very extensively. So anyone can get hepatitis from like taking too much of a one isolated drug or medication. Maybe it's from a secondary infection. So maybe they had varicella or chickenpox and that virus then attacked the liver, caused the inflammation, led them down the road of hepatitis. Or maybe it's from excessive alcohol consumption. But what the most common cause of hepatitis is, is a viral infection. And that's where the A, B, C, D, E comes into play. So if you think someone has hepatitis, before I start to break down those five, here's what you're going to want to consider in terms of labs that you're going to want to run in symptoms, because we know it's the liver, right? So we're going to look at liver enzymes, which originate in a complete metabolic panel. And specifically, what you're probably going to want to look for most succinctly, is going to be ALT and AST. Now, ALT just stands for alanine transaminase, which is a liver enzyme. The normal level of ALT is 7 to 56 units per liter. Again, these ranges might be different depending on where you're working or the lab manual that you're looking at, but this is just a rough estimate of what a normal ALT should be. Now, your AST stands for aspartate transaminase, and a normal level of that is 10 to 40 units per liter. The other lab that you're going to want to look at, especially when we're talking about hepatitis and or liver complications, is going to be the ammonia levels. 
and a normal ammonia level should be between 15 to 45 micrograms per deciliter. Now, what happens is when the liver is inflamed with like a hepatitis, for example, it's unable to do its job effectively, which means ammonia levels in the body increase. And when we have increased levels of ammonia in the body, one of the things that we will see as a symptom in these patients is an altered level of consciousness. Now, the antidote, not it's not an antidote, what am I saying? But the medication that we give basically to help get rid of ammonia is lactulose. And that's something that can be either consumed orally, we can give it rectally, but it basically binds to ammonia, prevents it from being reabsorbed, and these patients basically just poop it out. Now, the symptoms of acute hepatitis right, is varied because people can have hepatitis and not even know it. So they can be 100% asymptomatic and then they have some labs done and they're like, oh crap, you know, your liver enzymes are super high. But most often, or I shouldn't say most often, but other signs and symptoms, if they're not asymptomatic, are going to be like liver tenderness with palpations. So when you're in that right upper quadrant and you're palpating, they'll have tenderness specifically to their liver. If it's a super inflamed and scarred liver, then you might also be able to feel the borders of the liver. These patients might also be jaundice. They might have some dark urine. They might have clay-colored stools. Again, that cognitive impairment because of the elevated ammonia levels. And they might also have puritis, which is this itching skin phenomenon. And that is a buildup of the toxins that the liver is unable to filter out. And that's kind of how it manifests. So let's talk about the different types of hepatitis that are out there. A, B, C, D, and E. Here's the key mantra for you. Because for whatever reason, it seems like nursing schools and maybe even your board exams, they really want to test you on like, well, how is it transmitted? And the rule is, if it ends in a vowel, it comes from the bowel. So if your vowels are A, E, I, O, U... So A and E are the only forms of hepatitis that are transmitted via the fecal-oral route, oftentimes via food and water. So if it ends in a vowel, it comes from the bowel. The other ones, B, C, and D, right, because those are not vowels, those are actually transmitted through blood and bodily fluids. So like IV drug use or, you know, during the birthing process or through sexual intercourse. So that's how those are transmitted. And that's a pretty easy way to keep those different types of hepatitis separate. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through each type of hepatitis and we're going to talk about each one individually. So the first one I'm going to start with is viral hepatitis A. Again, it ends in a vowel, so it's transmitted via the fecal-oral route through food and water. And if someone gets hepatitis A, it's an acute infection only. So the person gets it, their immune system kicks into response, and it can go away. When people have hepatitis A, some of those signs and symptoms may be, again, asymptomatic. So if they're not symptomatic, you can still have hepatitis. This is a thing. But if they do have the symptoms, what we're going to look for are GI symptoms, right? They're going to have nausea, vomiting. They'll have some abdominal pain. Uh, They might be jaundiced. They might have a fever or fatigue, dark urine, and clay-colored stool. Now, hepatitis A is contagious for about two weeks before they're symptomatic, and one to three weeks after symptoms are present, which is why this makes it a little bit tricky. The diagnostic work that we would do for hepatitis A is going to be blood work, specifically the anti-hepatitis A virus antibodies is what we'll be looking for. And when we do that, we're really looking at two things, IgM and IgG, which are immunoglobulins. And if the they have an IgM, they are infectious. <laughs> If they actually have IgG, that means that they had hepatitis A, but now they are immune to it and recovered from it. And essentially, if someone gets hepatitis A, the treatment that we give them is just supportive therapy. 
just we need to rest the liver. And it tends to clear on its own. We can, in fact, though, prevent hepatitis A through the use of a vaccine. And lo and behold, go figure hand washing because it's transmitted via the fecal oral route. If someone is exposed to hepatitis A and we are aware of it, we can also initiate a post-exposure immune globulin, usually within two weeks of the exposure, and it helps to provide some temporary passive immunity so that they're not really ill from the virus itself. So that's hepatitis A you know, transmitted via the fecal oral route. So people that are really at high risk for it are going to be, you know, crowded areas like a daycare or nursing home and exposure to poor sanitation. Again, you can eat it. It can be transmitted if someone doesn't wash their hands. So some of those preventative measures are going to be strict hand washing, stool precautions, treatment of municipal water supplies if there's an outbreak in a community, things like that. Now we move on to hepatitis B. Now, hepatitis B doesn't end in a vowel, so the transmission for hepatitis B are going to be through blood and bodily fluids, whether that's, you know, through IV drug use or whether that's through sexual intercourse or maybe a needle stick while you're at work, which would be not fun, not ideal. And the key with hepatitis B is that it can manifest itself as acute or chronic infections. So people can have hepatitis B and be in a chronic state. When patients get hepatitis B in the acute state and it clears on its own, there's no problems, right? Again, this is a virus. It will run its course in due time. And the treatment for it in the, in the acute phase is going to be supportive. Again, when we think about hepatitis and what it does, it affects the liver. So these patients may be asymptomatic or they're going to have GI symptoms. Again, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, anorexia. They might have jaundice. They might have a fever, dark urine, clay-colored stools even. You'll see that hepatitis B's signs and symptoms in the acute phase is exactly the same as hepatitis A because it's a liver infection. So you're going to see that actually exactly the same for all acute hepatitis infections. That's one thing, one easy thing to knock off. The way that we test for hepatitis B is through blood work. And what we're actually looking for is we test for the hepatitis B antigen. It's an antibody in the system that we're looking for. And if they have the hepatitis B antigen, they are they're infectious. They're able to transmit it. They have that presence of it. And it is how we diagnose it. So if they have actually an anti-hepatitis B, that is the antibodies, anti-antibodies to the hepatitis B, it indicates that this person has been recovered or has some sort of immunity to it. Again, treatment for the patients that get hepatitis B, supportive therapy. The way that we can prevent this, right, is very simple. We do have a vaccine available in the United States for it. So we can give a vaccine. And if you're wondering when people get the hepatitis B vaccine, you should listen to my childhood immunization or vaccine schedule, an easy way to remember it. Because I talk about hepatitis B, it ends in a B, so it's given at birth, zero at two months, and then again at six months. Easy way to remember that. The other ways that we can prevent the spread of hepatitis B is if someone does have it and they can transmit it. It would be to, you know, have sharps precautions. So if you're a healthcare worker working with someone who's got a viral hepatitis, whether it's acute or chronic, make sure that you don't 
do a needle stick on yourself. Uh, use protection during sexual encounters. If, if people decide to have sexual intercourse with someone who's got hepatitis B, if they're exposed, again, there is a post-exposure immunoglobulin that if given within 12 to 24 hours can help prevent the development of hepatitis B in someone. Hand hygiene is going to be another big component that we're going to want to do to prevent the spread of this viral infection. Now, if someone gets hepatitis B and it's chronic, it means that the body is now overwhelmed and it will start to cause liver issues. The treatment, while it is still supportive therapies, we can then start to include antivirals, in interferon, things like that. And interferons actually inhibit varying stages of viral replication, including like the viral entry and mRNA synthesis. But we can give, if we think someone has got hepatitis B and there's, it's going to become chronic or it does become chronic, we'll give those sorts of medications to help kind of stem the viral activity itself. So that's hepatitis B. This leads us into hepatitis C. Hepatitis C does not end in a vowel, so again, it is transmitted via blood and body fluids through sexual intercourse, IV drug use, things like that. And patients who got blood products before 1992 are at risk for hepatitis C because that is before we were testing like nationally the blood bank storage for hepatitis C. Hepatitis C can cause both acute and chronic infections, but what is unique about hepatitis C is that most of the acute infections are going to turn chronic versus hepatitis B, where most people have only the acute version and it can become chronic. People with hepatitis C who get it, most cases turn chronic. Again, the signs and symptoms of someone with hepatitis C, think about its liver problem, right? So they could be asymptomatic. But if they have symptoms, they're going to be GI symptoms. Nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, anorexia, jaundice, fever, dark urine, clay-colored stool. Again, this is all the same as the previous two hepatitises that we were just talking about. Now, the way that we will diagnose hepatitis C is we will use a blood work test called anti-HCV, which is just the antibody to hepatitis C virus. And we will use that and measure it to detect chronic states of hepatitis C. Now, when someone has hepatitis C, because most cases turn chronic, the treatment for this particular brand of hepatitis is going to be antivirals. And they will actually also give direct and acting antivirals to help mitigate the viral activity inside the person. Now, the prevention for hepatitis C, and here's what's unique about it, there is no vaccine that has been developed or post-exposure immunoglobulin to work with hepatitis C. So this is why hand hygiene is a really strong thing that we can do. And being very careful around sharps in the healthcare setting, especially if you're working with someone who has hepatitis C, because we don't have a vaccine to prevent it or some sort of post-exposure immunoglobulin that you can get if you are exposed to it. There's also really strict blood and organ donation screening that's done. So anyone that goes to donate their, um, their blood, there's now very strict screening that is done specifically for hepatitis C, which leads us into hepatitis D. Now we're at hepatitis D. Now this is transmitted via blood and bodily fluids. And the unique thing, the one precursor about hepatitis D is that it only occurs if you have also hepatitis B. So hepatitis, you have to have hepatitis B in order to get hepatitis D. And hepatitis D is the most common in the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern areas. So... Because of this, right, these patients who get hepatitis D can 
also get acute or chronic infections, symptoms remain exactly the same. They can be asymptomatic or they're going to have GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, anorexia, jaundice, fever, dark urine, clay-colored stools. And the way that this is diagnosed is they will use blood work to diagnose it. And what they use is something called an HDAG. So it's a hepatitis delta antigen that they're actually looking for, or they'll look for the antibodies for hepatitis D virus, which is the um, anti-HDV. If someone tests positive for hepatitis D, treatment is going to be antivirals and interferon. And that's basically just to stop the virus from replicating in its various stages. The prevention, so to prevent people from getting hepatitis D, is to give them the hepatitis B vaccine. Because you can't get hepatitis D, as in dog, unless you get hepatitis B, as in baseball. So those two, you have to have B in order to get D. The other things stand to reason that you also want to do hand hygiene and you want to be careful with your sharps if you're in the healthcare setting and you're working with someone who has hepatitis D. So high-risk individuals who might have hepatitis D are going to be someone with a substance use disorder that uses drugs or people who are getting hemodialysis or frequent blood transfusions. If you have hepatitis B, you can also get hepatitis D, which brings us to the last hepatitis virus that we're going to discuss in this podcast, and that's hepatitis E. It ends with a vowel, so it comes from the bowel, meaning it is transmitted via the fecal-oral route as well, through food, through water, and also through undercooked pork and wild game. And this particular brand of hepatitis, because it's a waterborne virus and it can be transmitted that way, it's really prevalent in areas where sewage disposal is inadequate or where like communal bathing um, is con- is in contaminated rivers. And so we see this frequently in underdeveloped countries. And this will result in acute infections only. And what's unique about hepatitis E is that if it's an acute infection, but those with who are pregnant, um, it will actually cause significant complications in their third trimester. Signs and symptoms are, again, fairly mild. They could be completely asymptomatic, but because it's the liver that's inflamed, you're going to get your GI symptoms. Nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, anorexia, jaundice, fever, dark urine, clay-colored stool. It's exactly the same. So all the hepatitises have the exact same signs and (laughs) symptoms for the most part. Uh, In terms of diagnostic testing for hepatitis E, it's going to be antibodies for the hepatitis E vaccine, so anti-HEV. And the treatment is going to be one completely supportive for these patients because they will be able, they often are able to clear on their own. Prevention, here's the deal, because the United States is a developed country, there is no vaccine actually in the United States to give someone if they had hepatitis E. That would have to be you know, I guess, procured from a different country. So your prevention measures are going to be hand hygiene, cook meat really thoroughly, and when you're traveling, use bottled water because we don't have the vaccine here in the United States. So in summary, if we're going to talk about all the hepatitises, right, there are viral infections that affect the liver that cause that inflammatory process. If it ends with a vowel, it comes from the bowel, which is only hepatitis A and hepatitis E. Hepatitis A we can get 
in the U.S., there's a vaccine for it. Hepatitis E, the other vowel one, is usually in developing countries. There is no vaccine in the United States. And those are the only two hepatitises that have acute manifestations and don't turn chronic. Versus B, C, and D, which are all transmitted via blood and bodily fluids. All three of those have the potential to have acute and chronic infections, with the very middle one being most cases turning chronic, and that is C. C is for most cases turn chronic. And signs and symptoms across the board are going to be either they're asymptomatic or they're going to have GI symptoms. Nausea, vomiting, (laughs) everything we've just talked about. And the unique thing is that hepatitis C also has no vaccine or post-exposure immunoglobulin. So for prevention across the board, Hand washing, hand washing, hand washing. Be careful with sharps when you're around them. And then depending on how it's transmitted, like hepatitis E is fecal oral route with undercooked pork or wild game being a component, make sure you cook your meat for thoroughly. If you're going abroad and traveling, use bottled water, things like that. So that's the nitty gritty that I've got on hepatitises that you might see and kind of how to keep those five different variations straight. If you like what you've heard or you've been at least enjoying the podcast to some degree, make sure you like it in whatever platform that you're listening to. It just lets me know to keep going, frankly. Uh, And if you have any ideas or topics that you think you'd want me to cover, send me a message, put a written review, something where I can see it. Email address is located in the bottom of the podcast description, and I'm happy to try to approach it if it's in my wheelhouse. Otherwise, go forth and keep on learning.